Hello, and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hello, welcome back. So this week, we're going to talk about uh, an issue that I, I find very interesting when it comes to cyclists, which is uh, bone density. And I think in, in particular, especially road cyclists, when you look across the literature, you find that they tend to have lower bone density than their peers. So we'll talk about maybe some of the reasons why and some of the ways that you may be able to augment your training to help mitigate those effects. And I'm going to be a sample athlete, I guess. I know that I got a test, I think, a year ago, and I was a little bit low. Um, I think they said osteopenic. Is that the right word? For mm-hmm. you're like a little bit on the low end, but not quite. Um, you don't have osteoporosis. And so I'll be an active listener and ask a lot of questions to test. Ask, ask the hard questions. Yeah. To test how well I read the research. Correct. So, yeah, I think we should probably go with some definitions first just to establish sort of the ground rules, if you will, and so you have a basic understanding of what we're talking about here. So when you talk about bone density, you're usually measuring this with a tool called DEXA, which is a fancy way of doing an x-ray to understand basically how dense the bones are in different, and they look at specific different parts of the body. Um, as reference, they look at your lower back, they look at and they look at the hips, and then you can measure bone density anywhere, but those are the commonly reported areas. And then when you do classification, you do either T or Z scores, and you're looking at, so, you know, within one, 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 plus or minus one, those are sort of like the normal range that you expect. And then if you're minus one to minus 2.5, that's that lower than expected. Kind of and that's low, number low bone. of standard deviations. Correct. When you talk about the, the Z-score, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you're in that negative one to negative two and a half range, we call that osteopenia. That's lower than expected bone density. And then the diagnosis of osteoporosis comes in at you know, below two and a half standard deviations from the mean. So two and a half standard deviations is like 97th percentile or worse. Right. It's pretty far off. Third percentile in bone density. If it's lower is worse. Correct. Yeah. It's quite low. So if you have osteoporosis, you're in the bottom 3%. Yeah. Very, very low. Bone density. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's out, out on the edge, but there's still a lot of range, right? Because I think sometimes the hard part with that is like, well, what if you're 2.49? Like, is that really that different than 2.51? So the number matters just as much yeah, as relatively like if you're one or you know or 0.9 and again like 0.99 is that different than one you know okay we can we can argue but for for diagnostic purposes the, these are sort of the hard cutoffs that we use and you know, i think we could argue like the person that's osteopenic that's you know negative 1.01 is probably better off than the person who's osteopenic and you know negative 2.49 right and for more references on how the bell curve works, I think one standard deviation is it's, like the bottom third. So, uh, so one standard deviation should be 68% um, from the mean, right? So yeah, it gives you the thirds on either on either side, right? Yeah, so if you're at one, you're 31st percentile or something, 32nd percentile. Uh, ne- if you're, yeah, negative, well, negative one in this parlance, yeah. right? zero is kind of the mean. Um, correct, yeah, you'd be like 31st. And then if you're positive one, then you're like, 94th 
Okay. No, 84. Or, yeah, 84. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm guessing, you know, the, the next intuitive question is what are most athletes? Because you said cyclists are low. I assume soccer players, basketball players are, those are the 80th, 90th percentile. Is that correct? So generally speaking, it's athletes that do weight bearing activity. So your, your folks that are doing some running, jumping, those sorts of activities. Yes. They're going to have higher bone density. Although you sort of, you sort of stole the, the punch from the end of the, the episode. But I guess I gotta, I gotta put it out there now. I think we kind of have a, a trend of ruining each other's punches. Well, that's that's the fun, right? So yes, weight, weight bearing activity is, is a factor that plays a role uh, in, in your bone density. But when they look at uh, endurance runners, which more or less have a similar body type to endurance cyclists, uh, they sometimes observe lower bone density, which you wouldn't expect because they're doing weight-bearing activity all the time. They're they're running. And so one of the hypotheses out there is it actually has to do with uh, energy availability. So in endurance running and in cycling, of course, you know, low body mass has benefits, right? You have power-to-weight ratio. You have to move less mass over a distance, requires less energy. So there's some benefit to having a lower body mass. And so there's some thought that, well, if you're compromising, and particularly if you have a like low carbohydrate availability, that that may um, hinder your ability to maintain healthy bone mass. Hmm. And uh, I don't want to also tread too much on your other uh, big hits, but um, I'm interested also in learning about how calcium is involved because I know it's not, it's not linear in terms of you take more, you have higher bone density. Yeah. And so actually when you look at the, so, you know, like, yes, calcium, vitamin D, there is, there's some relationship with bone density there. But when they look particularly at the studies I reviewed uh, for this topic, they didn't find that that was correlated with higher bone density in these athletes. So it wasn't like, and now the way some of these studies were done, it it wasn't like they did an experimental trial where they said, oh, hey, let's grab, you know, 30 cyclists randomized. Some are going to have calcium and others are not. Uh, And these particular ones, they were just doing a recall. Like what what was your diet? What were you eating? And if you looked at the calcium across uh, different diets, you didn't see any correlation with the bone density in the athletes. Huh. That's interesting. So, you know, I've, I've seen others that were saying, well, if you had calcium supplementation before workouts that maybe that might help. And there was some hypothesis that perhaps, um, the sweat loss of calcium, you know, prolonged over years of training may be a contributing factor. Uh, it looks like that's a little bit harder to confirm. But that's true. I, I even read a study a few years ago about how magnesium can also contribute. If you're mm-hmm. low in magnesium, your body may use calcium uh, because they're, they have the same number of valence electrons. So I think that's also um, a bit of like, I don't know, bro science or l- less white papery. Yeah. yeah. And certainly calcium and magnesium also play a role in the bones. So, and, you know, you can have maybe it may have to deficit in magnesium that could possibly be contributing there as well. So, okay, so we've got nutrients out of the way, and I think the maybe the take-home message, especially when you consider the running population, the endurance running population, as being found to have lower than expected bone density at some points, it may actually be 
energy availability versus like any specific nutrient like a vitamin D or like a calcium uh, that's contributing or inhibiting um, the bone loss there. And see our uh, eat more carbs episode, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you're, you know, you're properly, I got to be properly fueled to train hard. So make sure that that's topped off and, you know, make sure that's maybe not uh, contributing or having negative side effects, uh, but not having adequate energy availability for your training. All right. So I think, you know, obviously I have to like have my little moment here where I get to like ring the bell for mountain biking road. When they look at the studies, mountain bikers tend to have higher bone density than road bikers. Um, and so like, but wait, it's all non-weight bearing. So I don't, I don't actually know the answer. I, I can only hypothesize the answer to that question. Um, and is this, uh, like well-trained athletes or yeah, just, yeah, uh, yeah. These are like pretty high level, okay. um, trained mountain bike versus road bike. So there's a, there's another study that looks at doing of all things, this whole body vibration, which like you sit on a vibrating plate and that that actually augments your bone density over time. It's like a 10 week protocol. It's like, well, I mean, maybe mountain biking does that as well. Cause you're, it's, there's a little bit more vibration. It's uneven surfaces. I don't think it's like you're a stronger athlete necessarily, huh. but I think it's some of the absorbing shock and riding on, on rough terrain. So maybe if you ride on cobblestones all the time or you're, you're into gravel or cyclocross or so track, uh, track, riders. track riding. I was, oh, uh... was going to say that like I was, when I was preparing this episode, I was thinking there's like, if I had to make a, a hierarchy of who, who would have the worst bone density in cycling, I would see, but track, I don't know. Cause you have the sprinters. They probably don't have like the same energy availability problem. Sprinters are huge. Yeah. So yeah. they might, they, they might be okay. They might be like positive, good bone density. Maybe some of the endurance track cyclists, like, you know, like pretty smooth surface and the endurance there. And then like road cycling. Okay. We know how the evidence there gravel's too new, but I, I would, I would hypothesize they're better off than road cyclists because they have the like kind of like mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Cyclocross, I think, has got to be pretty good. It's short, it's off road to a point, and you have to run. So, provided you're, I guess, um, well fueled. One, I guess, one area that jumps to my head is the the prevalence of off bike work in non road categories. So, you know, sprinters always in the weight room. We have all these Instagram posts of uh, professional mountain bikers doing crazy routines and balancing on, you know, uh, yoga balls and all this crazy stuff. And it's, uh, I think a lot of road riders, they ride their bike and then they go home and then they ride their bike the next day. And uh, I don't know. That's, that's my difference between the categories. And you just might as well read all the papers because you've got to the other, the other key point here. So we might as well just, uh, just talk about it. Okay. So, of you know, whoops. <laughs> so we said, uh, look, you know, nutrition, well, maybe it's making sure that you have enough fuel on board and you're, you're eating adequately, but there's probably not any specific nutrient or supplement that you're going to take. That's going to change this here. Hey, maybe mountain biking makes you better off than road biking. Okay, great. This is, you know, one point for, Gain a mountain biking and going out mountain biking, working on your handling skills, fantastic. Uh, but really, the the big thing in these studies is the riders that did weight training, they were better off. So the riders that did mm-hmm. weight training in their off season, they are going to be better off for 
you know, bone density when you looked. And that was like one of the things that had the highest correlations, like statistically significant, you know, 0.001 or less in some cases. So, you know, go lift weights. I think we have an episode on that, in fact. Yeah, a few. Uh, so, no, I think that's that's super important. It makes It's consistent with the other findings as well. When we talk about weight-bearing exercise, lifting weights is a weight-bearing exercise. So you're getting that stimulation. I think it's consistent with the, the physiology. There's a principle called Wolf's Law, which basically says that the, the bony tissue will respond to the stresses that are placed on it. So if you're loading it through resistance training, then you're, you're placing a load on it and it's going to want to you know, become more dense, become more um, robust. And you, you see this in, like, in interesting places in sports. Uh, there's been interesting studies done where if you look at elite tennis players, you actually see that their, the bones of their forearm on their dominant hand or dominant arm are much thicker, much more robust than on the non-dominant side. Um, and so it, I think it follows, it sort of follows that pattern of Wolf's Law. You can see like, well, hey, if you're cycling, there is no force. There is no, no real impact loading. So then it makes sense that the bones don't need to be as robust. Um, whereas if you're running, playing basketball, soccer, weightlifting, all these things are going to tend to make the bones and tend to have that need for the bones to be more robust to support those activities. And um, if we could quickly backtrack to, I actually don't know that much about bones. I know that it's some matrix of molecules and I, you know, I guess they can regrow. And can you just go over a little bit about what bones are made of and how do they regrow and what is the density really? So bones, bones are fascinating, I think, because they're, they're constantly remodeling. So when you have, there are two cell types in bones. So you have osteoblasts and osteoclasts and the nomenclature probably doesn't matter at the end of the day unless you need to do a Google search to figure this out. And so the osteoclasts break down old bone and then the osteoblasts rebuild and you know, put down, lay down new bone. So I wish I had looked this up, but there's some crazy stat about how frequently your bones are completely replaced with new material. Um, it's, I mean, it's not like days, we're talking like years span here, but like, you know, your, your femur is not the same tissue. It's not the same molecules that it was, you know, many years ago. Okay. Right. It's been, it's been replaced. It's been, you know, basically totally rebuilt with new, new tissue. And so you have, um, different types of bone as well. So you have sort of your, your cortical bone, that's the outer sheath that if you were to peel back the skin you'd see for the most part it's generally very smooth and then you know at certain points where muscles attach you'll see that there's uh, ridges or bumps or just different different shapes and different texture and that's where the tendons attach it gives them some some grip something to hold really to hold on to yeah there's more surface area for exactly that connection. and some of it is actually it's like the tensile load of that tendon actually pulls a little bit on the bone huh, and forms awesome. it. And so the other part is that in our development, we're not, our bones aren't super rigid. When we start off as kids, they actually become more rigid. So we have growth plates. And so the bones are kind of a cartilaginous and bony substance mixture. And then as we grow growth plates close. And then as we mature and reach skeletal maturity, sort of toward the end of high school, um, early college, depending, 
then you have your kind of adult bones that are this this bony matrix of calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. I'm sure I'm forgetting some other minerals. So then your bones aren't this aren't all cortical bone. There's also something called trabecular bone, and that is a little bit more like a, a matrix. It's um, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like a lattice work more or less. Um, that and that gives it the internal structure. So it's not like our our bones are solid solid and the, the larger ones have more open space um relative and some of the smaller ones are pretty solid so there's not enough space in there to develop too much of that yeah. lattice work um, there's not benefit right is it the function is that it makes it a little bit lighter if your bones were all super super dense you'd be very heavy your muscle death work really hard to move the skeleton yeah so the um for bending loads you want larger beams or thicker beams mm -hmm. and um and the reason for that is the bending equation, the amount of force you need is related to the height of the beam mm -hmm. uh, cubed. So that's why carbon fiber frames are really large because they can resist bending moments better. And then the hollow inside, it's because the um, they don't need to withstand axial loads as much. So when you have a hollow beam, it's a lot, it's really good for bending and not great for axial loads. So it seems like our bones can dynamically decide if we want to be have sort of hollow bones or really dense bones to probably depend on, on the on the load it respond it, the chronic loading right? yep yep and then you know you also if you look at cross sections of different bones they'll have different structure even within the bone if you look at the femur right the part that's down by your knee is going to look different than the femoral head and you know because of the turn the rotation how the, how it loads it's the fibers fibers but the tissue can be aligned slightly differently to be able to withstand the loads that are placed on it okay yeah and i think the lattice is a bit like crystal structure like if we think of salt granules mm -hmm. and if you think of like a big piece of salt it's just a bunch of little rectangles all stacked together i believe the inside of bones has a similar crystal like structure yeah more or less it's it's all inter interlaced and so when you start to talk about osteoporosis you talk about more open space in there right it's not it should have a certain density right that you would expect and and it's packed in like a certain amount of open space and then you start to get more and more uh, openness in there right and so then it starts to lose some of its structural integrity huh and so i'm, I'm thinking about weightlifting or say someone wants to someone's concerned about their bone density they want to improve it someone like a cyclist who might be high risk um, are there particular uh, strength training patterns or exercises that are better choices? Like I think, for example, um, doing squats with a pretty heavy weight, that's a lot of compressive load mm -hmm. throughout your whole body. So in terms of sort of like um, cost per unit time or, you know, like bang for your buck, that seems like a great opportunity to get a lot of stimulus on a lot of different bones. Um, are there... Is there any research on this? So I think that's an obvious one, given the the loading pattern there, right, and where where the weight is, what's being compressed, uh, and also when you start to look at bone density, right, you're looking at lumbar spine, you're looking at femur. Those are the areas that we're talking about that tend to be lower in cyclists. So this makes sense, right? We want to want to load those tissues. So I would say a couple things. I I tried to find some specific studies, and I, I failed to do so that look specifically at trained cyclists and was there a weightlifting protocol they could do then that led to an increase in bone density and perhaps this is a failure in my searching ability or perhaps no one's 
been able to recruit the cyclists. Any potential and, PhD students, uh, right. recruit, you can have Recruit this. the cyclists and get them to do a weight training program and before and after DEXA scans and, and, and all those things. You're welcome. Um, I mean, I, I think it'd be a fascinating study. I think it's probably a study we should do. If, I, if it's been done, then someone should tell me because uh, I'd be super excited to read it. Uh, so, yes, I think generally the big whole body free weight movements are probably the ones, you know, your squats, your lunges, uh, your deadlifts to a certain extent. I think all those things are the ones that you want to do to try to move and load, like move multiple joints, move, you know, as many bo- of these bones, in fact, apply a load through as many of these bones as possible uh, to increase the bone density. So I, I would advocate for those. Uh, I think, of course, I would also advocate make sure you're doing them right. Make sure before you go grab a heavy load, do it with some light weights first. Make sure you have somebody to supervise you and teach you the correct form so you don't end up injuring yourself trying to do a good thing. But yeah, so I, w- I guess I wish I wish I could say to you, great, go out and lift, you know, at your, um, your eight rep max, this many sets that, you know, and do it for 12 weeks a year and you're good and that's going to maintain your bone density i didn't come away with that data i guess the other part to think about is that you know usually we can add bone density into our late 20s early 30s and then we're sort of fighting a a losing battle at that point uh really (laughs) i need to get my (laughs) bone density up so so yeah i mean again this is like you can of course maintain it and I think, you know, look, that's sort of what the research shows over time. You know, maybe if you took up, you know, heavy weightlifting when you were 35, maybe you do add bone density. I would suspect that it's, it may be possible. So, you know, the body is, is very, very adaptable. I guess my my thought is, yeah, you know, if you can get on it early, it's like your um, your retirement savings account, right? If you start putting a little bit away when you're, you know, when you're 25 or 20, great, like you're those numbers look good. That compound interest looks good. In this case, if you can start, you know, loading those, loading your bones and you've played other sports before this point in time, you know, load bearing sports, then great. Uh, you're probably in a good, a better spot. But even if you didn't and you've just been a lifelong cyclist or like a swimmer that turned into a cyclist and you never really did any load bearing activity, picking up, starting to do some weight training is probably a good thing in the long run um, for maintaining your bone health. And I think even if you do listen to the strength training episodes, we didn't even talk about bone density and we still had a bunch of great reasons for you to do strength training. Mm-hmm. So this is just put another one in the pros column. For it sure. seems really natural to, we're just getting more evidence that strength training is important to becoming a good cyclist. And um, like you said about having good form, um, remember these big load bearing exercises that we're doing, squats, lunges, deadlifts are they're made to simulate on the bike movements you know we let's keep our feet the same width as the pedals let's you know focus on pushing the same way that we would push on the pedals on the downstroke and you know we want to simulate the bike because we're going to use this practice on the bike and to also improve our bone density and maintain our health and i think even more interesting is the fact that um I'm going to, I guess I'm going to talk about Chris Froome specifically, but a lot of grand tour riders, they hit the deck once and they're out of the tour because they broke their wrist. Mm -hmm. They uh, messed up their hip. Something bone related happens really often, especially to these really lean, um, 
really light riders. And I think that it's something that's neglected by a lot of coaches and a lot of people in the top level of the sport is they, they don't really, they don't really consider this a, a concern and almost it might be an advantage if your bone density is low, right? Your oh, total yeah, body right, mass your power, power weight ratio. And when you look at it, right, if you add a, a pound of muscle tissue in your, you know, in your glutes or in your quads or whatever, that's at least that's powering your bike. If you add a pound of bone somewhere, that's not power in your bike. I, I wonder if you'd get better power transfer I would, because your bones that, like, would like flex I, less. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I, that that mass is not moving your bike forward. And at that level, right? The you know, I'm sure it's fractions of a you know watt per kilo that are making a difference. Yeah, it's tough because uh, I know some people who every time they crash, they you know they break something, and it's uh, it's not because all your crashes are more horrific than the rest of us. It's probably because your bone density is low, and meanwhile you see people like I remember Peter Sagan tweeted. Everyone was complaining about the number of crashes in the tour, and he he tweeted like I've crashed every year, and I've finished them all except when I got DQ'd, um, but you know, he's, he's done a lot of things off of the bike and worked on his whole body and he crashes and he, he gets right back up and other people don't. And so this is a discussion on not just how to be a good cyclist, but how to be a robust athlete, you know, and a good human, Mm -hmm. even when you stop cycling. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing, the other hypothesis, certainly from resistance training I've heard in the cycling community was from some coaches and riders is more mountain biking. It's like, well, if you have a little more muscle mass it just gives you an extra shock absorber when you fall right like if you're like super lean and there's like you have no upper body mass well where's that force going right i mean there's really only bones left to absorb that impact whereas if you have little you know a little bit of extra muscle mass even a, a kilo then at least some of that soft tissue can absorb some of the forces and maybe that's helpful in, in mitigating the damage that happens from a crash yeah, and that specifically, I think um, shoulder press was the one that my coach always wanted me to do. Um, getting big delts is probably a good way to avoid a collarbone break because that's usually usually land on the outside yep. of your shoulder, and um, if you have a little more meat there, it, it can absorb some of it. And I noticed uh, one of the French track riders, so the track world championships was on um, this past weekend. And one of the French sprinters had like massive delts. And it's it's interesting because it's like, what are you doing with those things? Like your pull performance. On, pull on his bar. Yeah. Um, but also it's, it's just crazy how some of these riders who are really massive, how much power they can produce. And you have to remember, you have to push off something to produce the power. And so they need muscles all throughout the body to produce the power into the pedals because they need to push off the handlebars. Yep. They they need to be able to stabilize. And so the power is going down the pedal. Absolutely. So I guess we got the, the weightlifting piece out of the way more, more than, more than sufficient. Um, go lift. I mean, it's a little late in the season at this point. If you're listening live, if you're listening in like three months or six months. Sure. But certainly not, certainly even, you know, if you're in season right now and you're like, oh, gee, you should certainly you know, have a discussion with your coach or, you know, write, pen yourself a note that, hey, when I'm done, when I get into the off season and into my preseason next year, I need to hit the gym. And I need to figure out how, how I'm going to go about that. Yeah. Uh, so I can, op- so I can sort of optimize my health. Um, 
you know, it's my, so what's not too late for getting on a mountain bike. You can always get, you can always, you can make that part of your training. You know, if you want, if you want to make it a recovery day, go ride a mountain bike. Although mountain bikes kind of hard to recover sometimes because it's, yeah, you sometimes know, less, your heart rate just goes through yeah, the roof. Yeah, you just can't manage that. But um, certainly, certainly wouldn't hurt. And of the of the cycling disciplines that have been studied and reported on in the literature, it would indicate that mountain biking tends to be better for your bone density relative to road biking. I bet you could get away with riding your mountain bike for your workout days on um, during your high intensity month or six weeks. Mm-hmm leading up you don't want to crash obviously leading up to your race but if you have six weeks of intensity before your a race that could be an awesome time to pick out a course that has a lot of really steep pitches that are one two three minutes at a time and you can really get your heart rate up and get used to you know putting in a lot of uh a lot of power into the pedals yeah and get some get some variability maybe get some core work in there too um get some handling skills but to your point don't you know bite off more than you can chew yeah, I'm just thinking, um, you know, as a roadie, I'm not going to say that I'm a good mountain biker. I don't think I'm a good mountain biker, and I think that most roadies aren't. So to just go buy a mountain bike and try and rip through all the trails that everyone's used to. Um, yeah, don't don't go trying to set the KOMs on the descents your first time out. It's probably, probably a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And uh, you're also, you're probably too strong for your own good almost as well of like, yeah, I'm really yeah. fast and really strong and... You know, I don't really know how to use this bike well enough. Maybe gravel. It's the happy, happy medium. It's a little, little bouncy, a little more vibration. Good for the bones. Yeah. And also gravel can be, um, it can take you out of the routine of road riding a lot. If you are a road cyclist, it can take you to a new space. It can show you new views. And also, um, you have new like issues with your riding. It's, it's not just, can I get over this mountain pass or whatever? It's, um, you know, I have to lay out the power evenly because my tire is going to slip or um, I have to navigate these um, big potholes from the rain or whatever. It, it changes the way that you view your ride and changes the things you think about. So it can be a good change of pace for a road rider. Yeah, absolutely. I think now with the, the modern road bikes, it's not a stretch to believe you could do some light gravel riding by just a, a tire slop or even, you know, if you're brave uh, on your on your standard standard road some tires. people um train on 28s like continental um 28s and then you can absolutely, yeah, absolutely. go right on to gravel with this i mean i've ridden it on 23s at 120 before but you know that's me that's a little ambitious yeah it's you know it's a little it's a little more slippery than a mountain bike but doable and fun from time to time so uh yeah did i um exhaust all your studies or you you got all the good stuff you got all the fun stuff i mean there's 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 a lot of studies out there interesting it's like it looks like the scientists like to pick on cyclists or they're looking out for us one of the two um definitely like cycling is that that sport more more so than others that has low bone density um and so i think and i think it is a, a combination of factors though that they've pointed to right it's the, the non-weight bearing nature of the sport and it's also some for some folks the desire to have a lower body mass and thus the uh the reduction in energy availability that may be a contributing factor so i think it's you know i think the practical things are well one you know make sure you're adequately fueled two you know in your pre-season make sure that you're you're doing a good gym routine you're doing some resistance training doing the big whole body movements and i guess three as an aside you know, maybe look into some alternative ways to get on a bike. So if you want to do gravel or cross or, you know, mountain bike, 
you should probably go ride your bike off of a road somewhere. Um, or, or get a vibrating seat. Or get a, or yeah, or getting a, a vibrating plate to ride and do your training rides on. Um, but that that seems expensive and not practical for most people. I don't so. know some some of these masters riders. You got to watch out. Uh, I mean, I guess you know, dollar for dollar. I don't, I don't know how much a vibrating plate costs. I can't imagine that it's inexpensive. Hmm. But dollar for dollar, I feel like I'm I'm buying a new bike, buying a mountain bike or a gravel bike before I'm buying that. That's true. So, and I don't think I don't think that's something you're going to find at the gym either. Okay, well, I'm just going to go to my health club and sell the vibrating plate for the next 10 weeks. We should start a company where we sell gyms vibrating plates. Sure, somebody's thinking of that. Oh, we just gave it away. Um, yeah, but I think those are the, the practical tips for, I guess, looking out for your bone density, just things to think about. You know, I think not everybody needs to run out and go get a DEXA scan right now. I think it's probably reasonable to think like depending depending on how long you've been in the sport if you've been in the sport for a long time you haven't done any weightlifting then it's you know it's probably reasonable to hypothesize that your bone density might be lower than average um now not necessarily harmful at this point but certainly something that you want to you want to think about and you know it's always appropriate to have a discussion with your doctor too and see you know see what they're thinking make sure you're all on the same page before you go expose yourself to a bunch of radiation I think a DEXA scan, I, I'm pro DEXA scan, although you seem to think it's, I mean, you probably don't need it to, to know that you're probably on the right. low end of bone density, but at the same time, it can give you a lot of information about body right. fat percentages. Yeah, it'll give you, it gives you other information yeah. beyond bone density. Um, so I, I think if you're interested in how your body works and if you are training to optimize your body, you might as well get some more information, even though it's a one day snapshot. Um, as soon as you start to get two, three, four of them, then you can start to see trends and see how your well, body's and, changing. And bone density, while it's changeable, it's not going to change overnight, right? Like, you know, if you look at body fat percentage, you'd expect in a, a much shorter time window that that would change, or muscle mass, that in a much shorter time window, that's going to change. Whereas with bone density, it, it didn't change, but that's going to take time right and take weeks and weeks and months to actually see so what would you recommend three six months later to get retested Gosh. if you are focusing on improving I'm your bone to, density? you know i don't actually know the answer for that one um i know it's gonna take a while like i so i guess i'm of the like practical standpoint like well if there's to, in my mind there's enough research out there to say like if you're a lifelong cyclist or a longtime cyclist not doing any weight training chances are your bone density is you know lower than your otherwise healthy active peer right that's you know same body weight height and all that stuff so chances are you should probably start doing some resistance training uh, for for more reasons than your bone density right even if you're, you know there's performance reasons that we've discussed at length before and you know possibly consider mountain biking and most definitely can make sure that you're nutrition and caloric intake is adequate um, I, I think to me the fact that you can see decreased bone density in run, endurance running athletes even though that's a an entirely weight-bearing activity by definition to me that suggests that that might be the big that might be almost more of a driving factor than the the weight bearing nature and i think weight bearing has a part because of wolf's law and because of how our body adapts but like if your nutrition isn't right and you're undernourished i feel like that's a huge that's a huge factor um, and that is like that does that i mean i think knowing hopefully knowing your bone density isn't what makes you address that 
right? Hopefully there's other, there's other performance, yeah, like uh, chronic fatigue. Yeah. There's other issues in your performance that make you say like, Hmm, let me reevaluate my diet and my energy availability. Um, whereas like, yeah, maybe bone density is something you're ignoring or you weren't aware of. And like, we opened your eyes to it just now. And so then you go to that DEXA scan and you say, Oh, Hey, look, lo and behold, it is low. But I think you could, you could probably guess. And I think on the flip side, even, let's just say, Hey, look, you're, you're the, you're the, the model cyclist who has perfect bone density and you've never lifted a weight in your life. Great. Like lucky you, you picked the right parents, good genetics or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, there's still no detriment in, t- in you starting a, an appropriate weight training program in the off season. So I, I feel like if you made the assumption that it's a little bit low and you went and started doing some weight training, there's really no downside to that. Yeah. So, um, I guess, you know, to your point earlier though, it's like, if you fracture a bone every time you fall off your bike, don't try not to fall off your bike anymore, but then, then maybe you should have a chat with your doc. Like, Hey doc. And especially if it's not like, Oh, I've had these crazy crashes, a high velocity and like, okay, if that's the case, then sure. Like we, we understand why bones, it doesn't matter how dense your bones are. If there's enough energy, you know, in the crash, then no, no bones going to hold up. But if you have what you think, like, that's not that crazy of a crash. And I, you know, I got another fracture and I was out for six weeks. That, that's the thing for any time to have a chat with your doc and see if there's, you know, if it's worth getting that scan, get that information and then you know, go ahead and start a, an appropriate regimen to address it. Yeah. And, um, I guess, how do you know if it's a crazy crash or not? Uh, you, you'll have to talk to your Ask, your, ask your peers. Yeah, who witnessed it. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, you should ask your Garmin, right? What was the, the, the relative deceleration there? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you don't have anything else, Todd, I think we should. Uh, no, I think that's up. I think that's it. I mean, I think we got the the key points of what, what to think about, what, what you might want to do, uh, and where, I mean, where to go next for, for most folks. And I think with that, we'll say what we always say which is if you if you enjoyed or, or liked our podcast, please send us send us a review and, and share with your friends or maybe not share with your friends, depending on what type of writer you are, what, what type of advantage you're looking for. Um, and until next time, thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. <laughs>